Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. As a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is on the use of indigenous systems of management to produce healthier and more equitable salmon fisheries. We're joined by three guests who also appear as co-authors of a recent bioscience article. I asked them to introduce themselves so that you could get a feel for their voices. So with no further ado, let's go to the discussion. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thanks, James. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's fun. Okay, great. So I'm going to let you all introduce yourselves. So, Andrea? My name is Andrea Reed. I'm a citizen and member of the Niska Nation. I'm also of Irish descent and grew up on the East Coast of Canada. I'm currently an assistant professor uh, with the University of British Columbia, where I'm the principal investigator of a new center for indigenous fisheries. Thank you very much. And William? William Hosty, member of the Helsinki First Nation, and I work for the Helsinki Integrated Resource Management Department. Thank you very much. And Will? Will Atlas. I'm a salmon watershed scientist with the Wild Salmon Center. And thank you, Will. Okay, so today we're going to be talking uh, mostly about you know management of salmon. But before we get too far into that, I was hoping to give a little bit of background uh, for our listeners about the salmon themselves. So if any one of you, I'll throw it open, can just tell us a little bit about um, you know what Pacific salmon species do. Uh, do are how they live their lives, um, that type of thing, just as a little bit of, you know, kind of backfill for those of us who are not as familiar with their life histories. So uh, Pacific salmon, like all salmon, spawn in fresh water. Um, the eggs incubate in the gravel over winter and then emerge in the spring. And depending on the species, there's five species of Pacific salmon plus steelhead that are often sort of lumped with salmon. Depending on the species, uh, they'll either migrate directly to sea as a fry or they'll remain in fresh water for you know, one to four years growing and sort of preparing to go to sea as a smolt, which is what we call sort of a ocean migrating juvenile fish that's preparing for um, the marine environment. Once they're at sea, depending on their species and their population of origin, they'll migrate up along the shelf or out into the um, central Pacific gyre. Uh, and they'll spend between one and five years or six years at sea feeding and growing before migrating back to their natal river, often back to the specific reach of river where they were born, uh, constructing a red, which is the what we call salmon nest, uh, burying their eggs in the gravel and, and then dying and repeating that cycle. And so salmon have this very place-based migration where they return to the same places where they were born. And because of that, they're very locally adapted in terms of their spawn timing, their body size, um, their behavior. And so salmon are very sort of unique critters in the sense that there are five species, but really there are thousands of unique populations, all with uh, a whole suite of traits that are locally adapted to their watershed. Okay, thank you very much. I have learned a lot. And uh, now to start talking about management, you know, I think perhaps an interesting way of getting into this article is to talk a little bit about the way that these species were uh, managed before, you know, first contact with Europeans. You know, what was management like in the pre-colonial era? I can, I can jump in and, and start on that one. Um, <clears throat> so kind of uh, pre-contact, um, fisheries were managed a heck of a lot different than they are now. Um, you know, our, at that time, uh, a lot of our tribes were still living all throughout our territory. So each individual river system was being managed um, by a particular group of people, by individuals. So it didn't matter which Salmon Creek you went to, there was the, uh, the owners of that uh, part of the land were there, living there, um, taking care of the Salmon Rivers, 
making sure that the uh, river habitat was good, that the river wasn't flowing too fast or too hard, monitoring returns. Um, you know, they were looking at uh, maintaining the, the stonefish weirs, the stonefish traps, and those sorts of uh, things that we had at, at these sites. Uh, as we started to uh, amalgamate and all come to live together in, uh, in one place in my territory, uh, the management regime shifted. So now we're managing our, all of the salmon and fisheries uh, from one place. So we're not necessarily living in these places anymore, managing them on a day-to-day -day basis, but we're managing them more uh, collectively. Uh, so the management is a, is a bit less hands-on now than it was prior to uh, European contact when we were still living all throughout the territory. But all the same values, all the same principles are still being applied. It's just being done at a different at a different level, at a different scale for, for the HealthSick. Mm -hmm. And William's really speaking to HealthSick led management in the context of the modern era but you know also important to note that the fisheries have shifted out of these sort of terminal area fisheries that were owned by individual families clans or chiefs into a mixed stock fishery where fish from Helsic territory or fish from niska territory are intercepted in fisheries all through alaska and northern bc and andrea maybe you can speak a little bit to your own sort of understanding of the changes that have that have come down the, through time in the fishery yeah, I think William did a great job. I mean, that that reality is really parallel in Niska territory where management was spread out the way the watershed is and now it's it's concentrated in, in certain places and that removes kind of the managers from the land itself. So it creates this other kind of, of separation. But um, as as Will just mentioned, there's been this this real shift from fishing in terminal areas near the spawning grounds of salmon um, and throughout the watershed as well but really now there's this concentration of fishing in marine systems almost exclusively where all of these salmon are moving through the water together so we can't be really targeted about harvesting only salmon stocks that can support harvest and we're getting weak stocks alongside of ones that are doing well enough for us to take some. Okay, and let's talk about, you know, that, that difference a little bit more. Um, so, you know, the fishing has largely shifted um, to, you know, it's being done out in the ocean or, you know, at, at the coastal areas as opposed to further upstream. You know, how does that approach differ in terms of, you know, the way that it affects the stock and its, its health? I could try to take a crack at this one. Um, you know, Andrea really alluded to this in her answer, but, you know, the important thing is that in a mixed stock fishery, we very often don't know which stocks we're actually harvesting. In some cases, we never find out. And in many cases, we don't know until after the season when DNA samples are run from that mixed stock sample or code of wire tag data is analyzed to assign fish back to a hatchery where they were released from. And so the challenge is, you know, we're fishing populations that are healthy and abundant or enhanced by hatchery releases alongside populations that may be down to just a handful of individuals returning every year. And so that just creates a lot of unquantified risk that's extremely difficult to manage in these marine mixed stock fisheries, but which is more readily managed uh, by an in-river fishery um, targeting a single stock where, you know, that fishery is also generating information on the population as it comes in. Yeah, I find, I mean, find it's useful to put yourself kind of in the shoes of salmon that are finding their way back from the ocean up to their freshwater spawning grounds. They're moving in towards their rivers 
in these big groups that are all these stocks intermixed together, what we'll just refer to as mixed stock fisheries. And when they find that that scent of their natal river, they start peeling out into their own rivers to make their way up to their creeks and streams. And so as you go further up the watershed, you get that kind of narrowing that they're finding their way home. So you get less intermingling and you're able to then target those specific populations. And so it really makes it a very complex fishery to be navigating um, when you're in that marine mixed stock context. One of the big differences in the fisheries nowadays as well as happening out in the open ocean is that you're um, we've eliminated the opportunity to be selective of which uh, salmon we're actually taking for food sources so in, in, in speaking about that looking at the use of stone fish traps uh, we had the ability the technology to trap schools of salmon uh, in the, the low tide. And so the people were able to selectively harvest um, salmon that may have been weaker. Uh, they were able to let salmon go that were still in better shape to go and spawn. Uh, when we eliminated that method of fishing at the mouth of a river that way and went to fishing out in the open ocean, we're no longer selectively um, taking salmon that are um, you know, have a lesser chance of spawning in the river should they make it that far. So the differences in, in fishery are really, um, have really limited us in, in being able to kind of help and, and enhance the, the stocks in a way in that regard. Yeah, and it brings about all of these other sustainability concerns too around bycatch and inadvertent impacts on, on other organisms that are in the water, but also on different kinds of salmon. I mean, there are restrictions at, at certain points when you're out fishing commercially that you can't harvest certain species of salmon, and so you've got to throw them back overboard and get them back in the water. But how those fish fare, if they're actually going to survive to spawning grounds, that's something that we don't have a lot of knowledge of. Mm -hmm. And I'll actually note some of the work that William and I have been doing in the Quay River, we've been tracking the survival of individual sockeye from when they enter fresh water to when they spawn and fish that have gill net scarring from passing through the fishery and being tangled in a net and escaping have about a 30 to 35% lower chance of reaching the spawning grounds. And I've done work in the Fraser that really parallels that exact finding where I'm looking at gill net um, effects in the low river and following those fish to spawning grounds and it's a really similar finding and so I think that this is a parallel thing that's happening across our, our systems in BC and throughout the Pacific Northwest. Okay, and so you know, it sounds like we're kind of you know building the story of uh, there was you know traditional fishing practices that were highly geared toward ensuring that you know it was a single stock um, in a, in a single in river fishery that was sustainable. The fisheries were highly resilient, and then you have this transition to you know this commercial marine fishing, and those techniques you know are not as sustainable. You know, what's next? Is is how do you move from you know that commercial approach to um, you know, back into using the indigenous techniques that have been effectively managing these populations for millennia. Well, if I could point to one thing quickly before we sort of look forward, but it's really to sort of add another wrinkle in terms of the way that a transition to mixed stock ocean fisheries has really fundamentally altered people's relationship to salmon watersheds. Because when you have hundreds of salmon populations co-migrating through a fishery, you have numerous hatchery facilities enhancing salmon that are being captured in marine mixed stock fisheries, that really changes the incentive structure for fishers and for fishing communities when it comes to protecting the habitats that support abundant and resilient 
salmon stocks. And so what's happened is we've seen this decoupling between fishing opportunity and stewardship of watershed habitats over the last 150 years. We've also seen a tremendous amount of damage done to freshwater habitats that support salmon uh, across British Columbia, across uh, Alaska and the lower 48 states. And so I think that's a real um, sort of point that we often miss when we're talking about the sort of configuration of the fishery, how the fishery's changed. The fact of the matter is indigenous people that are rooted to a specific watershed, their survival is contingent on protecting that watershed, on protecting the long-term viability of salmon, and that means protecting the habitat. And so we've actually sort of disincentivized habitat protection because, oh, there's always other rivers that are going to produce salmon for us, and so we don't need to protect this one. And so I think that's a real sort of lack of a vision and, and frankly like a lack of understanding that was in the mindset of colonial people when they came here and when they built these fisheries it was viewed as a boundless resource that could never be diminished and we've seen in 150 years we've gone from you know millions of salmon being caught by the commercial fishery every year in bc to now barely having any commercial opportunities whatsoever and this shift into marine systems into putting all of our eggs in that basket it hasn't it, it's not just opportunistic it's, it was really purposeful. I mean, the Fisheries Act in Canada specifically banned many forms of indigenous fisheries methodologies and practices. The Indian Act banned many ceremonies that were used to, to govern these waterways and, and used to carry knowledge and language and, and all of these things that are intertwined with the fishery. And so this shift, it's really a consequence of these really toothy colonial instruments. And then kind of digging into uh, James' question there uh, prior to Will's comment, um, how do we get back to using these um, traditional uh, ways of fishing and, and methods of management? Um, for, for my people, and this is, again, this is, it's all relative, it's different depending on where you are, because you know, what I'm going to say won't, doesn't apply to Andrea and her, and her tribe because they come from a place where there's a big river, a big river system. Here in my territory, we don't have a, a big river system. We have a network of a couple of hundred small systems uh, that we rely upon uh, for subsistence purposes. And so when you look at the management uh, uh, of that, uh, even though we're made up of a, just a, uh, a network of a whole bunch of smaller systems, the management regime is still geared towards as though we're managing fish in the Fraser River or, you know, those larger rivers like that. So shifting away from uh, managing um, and fishing kind of on a regional scale and focusing, refocusing back to an individual um, stream by stream scale of management to manage fisheries is how we're going to get back to better managing these fisheries. And by doing that, we're not making, we're eliminating a lot of assumptions around, um, you know, how much salmon are in, are in this area and that area, because the way it stands right now, we look at, we manage my part of the territory as a part of the central coast as a whole. Well, we are a part of the central coast, but there's so many different factors that play into that. And it doesn't always translate down to uh, what's actually there when you go to a creek in the, in the fall and you look at what's in the creek, there's nothing there. Um, so by shifting from this really high level, managing on a large area base, focusing back to 
individual streams is how we're going to get back to better managing um, the salmon and better managing the fisheries in these areas. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, they say the first step to recovery is admitting you have a problem. And I think, uh, you know, everybody in BC right now recognizes that we have a problem. And it's that the current paradigm in fisheries management has failed us. And it's also done demonstrable harm to Indigenous people's sovereign rights. Uh, and frankly, to just the ecosystems that sustain all British Columbians. And so, you know, admitting that the current mixed stock paradigm is failing, that we'll never have the information that we need to manage that fishery properly. And even with the best possible information, the risks are uh, so great for many populations that there's no real way of reconciling those issues. And as William says, shifting back to a local, uh, locally managed uh, and smaller scale fishery paradigm where we're actually targeting individual stocks or we're using selective gears is a way to create more sustainable and equitable opportunity. And I think another thing that's really important that I've kind of started to think about more is that, you know, in the current model of the commercial fishery, you know, an individual fisher buys a license, they buy a boat, they go out and fish, and then the economic benefits of that fishery is accrued by them individually. But the thing is, historically, fisheries were communal under undertakings. You didn't fish by yourself, you fished with your whole village. And so, you know, projects where folks are getting out and catching fish together are actually providing a whole suite of benefits that go beyond just the economic opportunity that it creates. They include benefits like the social and cultural cohesion and cooperation and people building sort of a shared identity and a collective desire to be stewards of that resource. And so we see, you know, for instance, in the project that William and I work on in the Quay River together, there's a whole host of benefits that include getting kids out from the school in the summer camp. It, we get food fish for elders in the community that can't go out and get their own sake anymore. And we're simultaneously collecting information on the number of fish that are coming back so that the Helsinki Nation can uh, manage that fishery with real information. So we need to think of fisheries not just as a way for one individual to sort of gain access to economic opportunity, but rather for a way as a way for communities to benefit collectively uh, through that natural resource. Yeah, and as a direct extension to that point, which I love, Will, is just how we define salmon, right? That if we talk about them as resources, natural resources are defined by the economic gain that can be had from them. But these are fisheries that for a very long time were very relational, that salmon were seen and are seen by many as relatives. Many nations up and down the coast identify as salmon people. And it's, it's so much more than just a commodity or a product. And we've managed it in this centralized way called command and control over these vast geographic areas. And so we really need to do what William was suggesting about getting really local and really specific and empowering the people in those areas to be the managers. Okay, so I think you've all described today, you know, a system and approach to the management of Pacific salmon that is, um, you know, vastly better for the salmon and the people who rely on the salmon uh, versus, you know, the more extractive marine fishing models. Um, but I wonder, and, and I think this is, you know, in particular for those who are listening in the U.S. and are less familiar with, you know, kind of Canadian regulation, et cetera. Um, what are the steps that must be taken in order to, you know, get from here to there? How do we move from, uh, you know, this colonial extractive model into something that is, you know, um, more sustainable and equitable? Well, you know, that you're right that that's really going to vary by geography. And I think there are some unique opportunities emerging in British Columbia right now that maybe William could speak to through the reconciliation process and some of that 
but I think there's also some general take homes. And the thing is like a lot of tribal fisheries in the US are actually already in river fisheries. And so they've sort of made the first step. And then it's about sort of, okay, if we wanna have in river fisheries, how do we create uh, more selective gear types or how do we revitalize these sort of uh, systems of indigenous governance that inform management and really drive decision-making. And so I think um, it's really about sort of devolving management to the scale of the communities that depend on the fish. Uh, and that's going to sort of depend on each place in terms of how that's configured. But I think there's a, there are some very exciting emerging opportunities in British Columbia in particular, but that's not to say we can't learn from those examples uh, in, when it comes to implementing, you know, indigenous systems of management for salmon across their range. Yeah, in terms of the regulatory part of it, you know, for the last 150 years or so, we've had the Department of Fisheries and Oceans who have stepped in and had a hand in, in managing um, these fisheries and have done a very poor job in doing so. Um, as Will alluded to earlier, um, everyone in BC can agree on one thing, that the salmon stocks are in bad shape here. And so that's one of the, the areas where on, a, on the regulatory side, we've been able to um, successfully negotiate the uh, to be able to jointly manage species like salmon with DFO because we have a clean slate. But unfortunately, it's taken uh, it's taken us getting to this point where there's so little left that we're finally going to start to do something, finally recognizing that there is the issue and trying to find solutions. So again, it's it's taking that regulatory power that. Uh, that uh, an organization like DFO has over fisheries and, and, and stocks of salmon and shifting that back to, uh, to, the, to the rightful holders in the, in the territories and, and applying local knowledge. Local knowledge is what helped these species survive for thousands and thousands of years and we depended upon one another. And as soon as that was uh, taken out, everything just started to collapse. So really kind of taking some of that power away from, you know, the, the, the government and the regulatory side and putting it back in the hands of the nations and the ones who really know their own territory best is what's going to really help uh, the salmon to be able to, to rebound back to the point where we're all able to have access to, to food, social and ceremonial, have access for uh, commercial but we have to take a different approach than, than, than DFO has over the years. And the only way to do that is to go and start from scratch and build this from the bottom up. Uh, that's the only way we're going to get there. Yeah, I think it's fundamentally about land back, right? It's, it's fish back or water back, however you want to phrase it, but reinstating that sovereignty, like William's saying. And I think that there's a, there's a huge frustration in many communities because it's been that purposeful disempowerment in in so many places and now we see governments expressing interest on this return to selective fishing methods and starting to revisit these tools and methods and strategies that they once outlawed and without reckoning with that history i think that yeah i don't know i guess i fully agree with william that it's it's a back to square one kind of thing to build this from from the ground up and one major hurdle that will need to be cleared in that, of course, is the Pacific Salmon Treaty, which is a sort of bilateral treaty between the U.S. and Canada that governs exploitation of salmon in mixed stock fisheries from southeast Alaska right down uh, to the Washington border. And the challenge is, of course, that uh, these marine fisheries are intercepting fish from 
you know, Alaskan fisheries are intercepting fish from BC and BC fisheries are intercepting fish from Washington and Oregon. And so without sort of um, sacrifices made in these mixed stock fisheries and allowing more fish to move out of the marine fishery and into their natal rivers, you know, transitioning the fishery to terminal will have very little benefit because we're fighting over scraps. Right? And so we really need to modernize the Pacific Salmon Treaty and frankly, to give indigenous people a greater voice in the Pacific Salmon Treaty, because right now it's this sort of overarching colonial resource sharing agreement that's really in place to facilitate uh, commercial extraction of salmon, frankly. Uh, and it's sort of a, it's a 1980s era agreement that is now being used to govern salmon fisheries in 2020 in the midst of rapid climate change and you know, sort of catastrophic decline of wild salmon. So we need to update the Pacific Salmon Treaty and make it more reflective of the realities that we all face now and, and make sure we're getting more fish back into the river so that they can rebuild populations and support terminal fisheries in a sustainable way. Okay, and making the you know rather bold assumption that these regulatory hurdles can be cleared, uh, what will fishing and what will management look like uh, after that, you know, we can talk a little bit about fishing gears and techniques specifically, if you'd like. Um, and I would recommend everyone to go ahead and have a look at the article. There's some excellent graphics in there that kind of really make it clear sort of how all of this works. But for our listeners, what's the broad picture of indigenously managed salmon populations? Well, I think it's going to be really locally specific, right? It's on a case-by-case basis. So what gear works there? What is the cultural tradition of stewardship and fishing in that place? So you know, William and Andrea can both speak to examples from their own experience and their own territories. And I think we really don't want to be too prescriptive, but what we want to do is empower local people, empower indigenous people. And we should also say like the benefits of transitioning towards more in-river fisheries or more selective fishing gears, those benefits will be reaped by all members of society. It's not about just benefiting indigenous people. It's about benefiting all salmon dependent people, people who have a sort of ongoing relationship with salmon. And so we want to make sure that we're also clear about that, but it's really about empowering local people and about sort of the context specific challenges and meeting those challenges with these technologies that have a 10,000 year history of success. Yeah, I think just what, what Will said is it, it works best when you um, can manage on a system by system basis and not as a, a kind of a, a blanket approach to management. So. Um, in doing so, you're really relying on the local knowledge to be able to go out and assess whether or not a particular stream in that area is, uh, is, has enough of a stock to be able to conduct a fishery. And if so, um, is it a gillnet fishery? Is it a sane fishery? Is it just uh, hook and line? So, you know, those, you know, those kind of decisions need to be made on the ground, not by someone in a three-piece suit in Ottawa. The people that know the best that are that are on the land, on the water, on a daily basis, looking and checking in and know these places, can make those decisions and 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 we can, you know, regulate it that way rather than taking a blanket approach to, to the entire sort of region. Yeah, it really comes down to asking the communities and, and the peoples involved in my current role as the principal investigator with the Center for Indigenous Fisheries, I'm hearing a lot from communities who have profound interest in restoring traditional ways of managing, of having more sovereignty over the science that's happening in their territories. I think that there's a sincere and profound interest across nations and tribes. So it's just a matter of giving them the space and and asking them what it is that they need, how they would like to be involved in that system of management. And I think that we would find very active interest among among these groups. Well, I think that's a 
great note on which to leave the conversation. Andrea, Will, William, thank you all very much for being here today. Thank you, James. Thank you. Bye, everybody. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.